Welcome to the Evangel Temple Youth Ministries Podcast. You're about to listen to another message from Pastor Isaac Worley. We pray that this message would be instrumental in God speaking to you and drawing you closer to Him. Now, here's today's sermon. Well, hey, we're in radical uh, religion. We have been now, this is our second week in it, and to kind of recap, last week we, uh, we were talking about what chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, is addressing. So the Sermon on the Mount is comprised of Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, and we're, we're really just saying God in um, his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ in his Sermon on the Mount, preaches from chapter 5 to chapter 7 that we should live radically for him. If we are professed Christian, if we say that's who I am, you are to live radically so. And we kind of broke it into segments also, though. Radically, uh, chapter 5 says that we should live radically for him in our context of our relationships, how we interact with one another. And then chapter 6 comes along, and it says really that we should live radically for him, but in this religiosity, in the, in, in the spiritual disciplines, thing that we, things that we do that would draw us closer to God, our religion. And uh, so that might include fasting and, and praying and, and giving Ties. That's never a comfortable thing to talk about, but these religious activities would draw us closer to him, and he says, do it radically, because through those you will see me all the more clearly. You fast, you will see me clearly. If you would just pray earnestly, on your knees, just seeking him, you will find him. And so um, two things that I want to kind of recap from last week or two weeks ago, uh, was that one religion or religious activity is not a bad thing. Actions without heart is, right? We don't want to be robots. But actions with a heart behind it is an amazing thing. Religion is not bad. Dead religion is. When you don't actually care about what you're doing, you're doing it anyway, that is bad. But you can have such a love for Jesus and therefore do religious acts, and that is an amazing thing. Jesus actually calls us to do it. So religion's not bad. Um, and I really just wanted to emphasize that. The second thing that we talked about last time was that, as Emma, I think, pointed out, we don't do it for attention. We're, we're not praying in the synagogues. Well, we don't have synagogues, but they aren't praying in the synagogues. We're not going out on the street corners and just praying. We don't have those little boxes on our forehead, right? Uh, just to show off that we are religious people. That's not why we do things. That's not why we fast. We don't fast where we can walk out and we're like, I'm so tired. I've been fasting a lot lately. You know, That's not why we do it. We do it to seek God. And so we try to cover up these things and not flaunt them. Uh, so those are two things that we really talked about when it came to religion. Uh, chapter 6, broadly, kind of bird's eye view of chapter 6, it really focused on that. Religion is good. Religious activities, things that we would do religiously are good things. That's chapter 6, talking about that. And he also just has this thread, this theme throughout chapter 6 that is, but don't do it for attention or popularity. Do it because it will give you a reward of being closer to God or more aware of his presence. It's an award that we would, reward that we would get. Well, uh, tonight and the next two weeks, we're going to be looking more closely um, at the specific religious activities that he would call us to do. And so tonight, I'm going to look at, we're going to look at uh, giving. And this is so much more than just tithes. This is, as we'll find, a lifestyle of generosity that we're called Two, we're, we're called to not just give tithes, or not just called to give 
offering and monetary offerings to God in a worship service, but we're called to be giving people, religiously so. And so looking at uh, generosity and our giving, um, let me read the passages, the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight. It's only three verses, verses two, three, and four. And believe it or not, as small as this is, we're actually going to break it down even more and look at one little thing that's said in here, actually twice. Maybe you can find it. Uh, It's not even a full sentence. It's a clause. And we're going to kind of hone in on that. So let me see, or let, let me read here what Jesus has to say about giving and how the Christians should do it. It says in verse two, so whenever you give to the poor, don't sound like a trumpet before you. Don't sound a trumpet before you. Don't sound like a trumpet either. Don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that the Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay? Anyone have an idea of what maybe the clause is that we're going to look at? Give to the poor? Close. When? What? What? When, somebody said when? I'm just getting a bunch of ideas. Together, I think, did somebody say when or was I just, yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, so when. I was like, I thought somebody said when. When you give to the poor. You guys together, win a prize. When you give to the poor or whenever you give to the poor. He says it twice here in uh, verses 2 and then verses three, verse 3. When you give to the poor. I want to focus on that clause. When you give to the poor. I think in this clause, he, Jesus is assuming two things. Can you help me out here? What is Jesus assuming? Two things he's assuming in saying, when you give to the poor, what is it? They give. Do what? There's always poor people. Yes, that too. You give and you're giving to the poor. So yes, actually that's true too. He's assuming there's always going to be poor people, which there will be. Jesus is assuming that we are going to be giving, and we always are giving, and he also assumes that it is to the poor in which we give. We're giving to the poor. That's what he assumes. So I want to focus um, on each one of these individually. So first, we are giving. This is an assumption that Jesus would have. Why would Jesus assume? Why would he just take it upon himself to think we are going to be generous people? Why would Jesus assume that about each one of us? Well, I think it has a lot to do with our identity in him. He himself is infinitely generous, and therefore, as his disciples, he would assume they also are, since they are taking on his character. Are you, are you tracking with me? They, they are his disciples. He's assuming such. He's sitting there talking to these people that are claiming to be his disciples, and other people are overhearing him, but he's talking to these guys, and he's saying, when you give to the poor, he's assuming, since they are his disciples, they are going to take on his character and his nature, and he is infinitely generous. He assumes it because he is it. He is generous. And he would assume them being with him, them following him, them claiming that he is Lord, that they also would be generous as he is. Let me give kind of an example here, just to drill it in your mind that much more. Whether you like it or not, you guys are, uh, each one of us are products of the family you were built up in, grown up in, built up, whatever. Um, you're just going to be like your family, and that's just true. Sarah and I found that uh, whenever we started dating, we were very different. 
Well, our families are very different, very, very different. And, uh, and Sarah, I think, made fun of me more than I made fun of her. Um, I, I just am a victim to that, and I have to live with it. And uh, a lot of counseling hours has went through it, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> that's terrible. Uh, Sarah would just kind of just prod at me because uh, things that I would say. And, and we came to it, well, because that's what my family says. My family talks that way. And so a few examples I wrote down uh, just to hopefully find like company here. I'm not sure. Maybe I'll be the only one. I say refrigerator instead of refrigerator. <laughs> Does anyone else say, yeah, hey, uh, could you get that out of the refrigerator? I, that's just me. And so Sarah's like, oh, that's just, yeah, like, well, that wasn't the term I was going to use, but that's the term Sarah uses. Yes, that is what she calls me. Refrigerator. You, you understand the track that we're going down now. Uh, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure everybody says this because it just comes out this way. Washcloth. Anyone? I mean, honestly, no. Oh, gosh. Okay. I will. You guys have a good night. I'll see you later. Okay. Well, that's one. Okay. Well, then Sarah's got light company here. Really? Well, I maybe it was meant to be from Wisconsin. I don't know. Um, would that also be hickish? Washcloth. What about this one? And this one, honestly, Sarah said, like, it's kind of my, like, universal term because anything could be jimmy-rigged. Anyone ever heard jimmy-rig it? No? No one really? It's like, yes! So you just, if you just got to fix something with some duct tape and it'll last for just a little bit, it'll work, but maybe not, you know, it won't last long, you jimmy-rigged it. Sarah's like, oh, that is just so hickish. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not so far as to, like, call that um, tornadoes, call them naders. I don't do that. I'm not that far, <laughs> Okay, hone it in. Do we even remember the point that I was talking about? We are products of people that we spend time with growing up. We are products, bring it in. We are products of our families, the people that we spend time with. It is no less true that when we are in Christ, now hopefully the, we, we got off that rabbit trail, being in Christ, right, or being with Christ would make you like Christ. We see this truth in uh, Ephesians 4, 2 Corinthians 5, and then the entire chapter. Uh, it's an amazing chapter. You should look at it. Colossians chapter 3. It's all about how should we just take on Christ's personality, Christ, take on Christ's uh, attributes to be like Christ. And, and he uses this term, Paul does throughout many of his books, uh, to be a new creation. And he's really saying whenever you would come into this relationship with Jesus, you become a new creation that people might say, What'd you do with the old Isaac? What'd you do with the real Isaac? Because I'm just so different than I used to be. I'm a new creation. That The way I talk, the way my demeanor is, the, the way I treat people is completely new. And I am like Christ now. What Christ values, I value. What Christ does, I do. What, what Christ cares about, I care about. What he's passionate about, I'm passionate about. I become like Christ and I become in Christ. That's what that means, in Christ. And a beautiful attribute about Christ is that he is unbelievably generous and giving. Unbelievably generous and giving. You see this uh, actually later in this chapter, Matthew chapter 6. He, he uh, starts to say that, well, you guys are worried about life. Let me give you some analogies. And, and then he starts to talk about um, these, the birds. He's like, look at the birds. Look all around you, the birds. And, and he says, these guys don't store up things. They're not, um, you know, like, 
hoarding their food, and yet they can trust that uh, their Father in heaven would take care of them and provide for them. How much more you, right? So he just says, I will provide for you so much. I will take care of you. And he says, I'll give you another analogy. What about, what about the lilies? Like, you just look in these flowers, and uh, they... You worry about the clothes that you'll have, the clothes that you need to get, and, and God would provide clothing for the lilies, these petals, right? How much more will I provide for you? And he's just trying to make this point. I am so generous and so uh, I will always provide for you, so don't worry. And so he's really just making this point that he is our great provider, and he loves us. And I think it's most beautifully shown in the cross, is it not? If you're a professed Christian, you will know that the greatest gift we could ever imagine, we could ever receive, is Jesus Christ dying on the cross, taking our sins, taking what we deserve, that God would judge us for the life that we've lived, and he says, I will go in your place, I will receive that judgment from God, and I will die for you. An unbelievable gift. And to further that gift, he says, and now... Your slate is wiped clean. All those horrible things, I don't care what it was, is forgotten. And now you are, can spend eternity with the perfect and pure God. Eternity with him. As if you've never done anything wrong. A pure God. This is an unbelievable generosity that we could never fathom. Yet, this is, this is what he does. I think I actually have, do I have a... Uh, Romans 8 shows it so well. If God is for us, this is verse 31 and verse 32, if God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. A gift that he did not need to give, but because he's a generous and loving God, he did. He was generous to give his son who would die for us, who would not only just take a physical death, he could be like, oh yeah, that's really nice, but he's living in heaven again. He's on this throne again, so it wasn't that long of a gift. He took on not only physical death, but spiritual death, condemnation for all the sins of the world, the unbelievable darkness Jesus would take on himself. Could, you, you can maybe relate to being in a dark place in life. You cannot fathom the darkness that Jesus stepped into in love for you. He stepped into complete, complete rejection from God. Judgment for all the sins you and everyone else on this globe has ever committed. Raining down judgment on him and he stepped into it as a gift for us. How will he not also uh, with him grant us everything? With Christ that is. And so uh, he's unbelievably generous. And we are to take on his attributes, take on who he is, and therefore so, what should we conclude? That we should be unworldly in our generosity, like nobody has ever seen before, nobody could ever fathom, and it shouldn't even make sense to non-Christians how generous and giving we are, because we are like him who gives in a way that we can't fathom. So we should be so generous that other people will be like, what are you doing giving all that away? You don't need to do that. And we're like, no, I do. I need to be this generous. We should be unworldly in our generosity. It's taught in Matthew 5, the chapter that we just looked at, that, that uh, Jesus says, if somebody wants to take your shirt, don't just give them their shirt, give them your shirt, give them your coat. Right? They're trying to steal from me. Give them your coat. Do it. Unworldly generosity. 
He says if somebody would, would force you to pick up their bags and say, walk one mile for me, maybe you can't fight them because it's a potentially a Roman soldier that would have a, a, a sword drawn and you'd say, you walk my things one mile. He says, don't just do it. Say, you know what, I'll, I'll walk two for you. I'll, I want to do that for you. Unworldly generosity. This is taught in Matthew 5. It's applied in Matthew 19 when the rich young ruler, if you've heard the story, would come to Jesus and he says, I want to I receive eternal life. What can I do to get that? And Jesus tells him all these different things. He's like, I've done it. I've done that. I've done that. And Jesus says, okay, well, what I need you to do, I need you to go sell everything. And not just sell everything to make all, all this money, but I need you to take all that money, every penny of it, and then give it to the poor. And then you, you would be a follower of mine. And the man can't do it. And we might think, well, that's, that's just hyperbole. That's, that's just like a crazy example to make a really good point. We need to be generous. And he is making that point, and we need to be generous. But I don't think it's just some hyperbole that he really would expect that man to go that far because that's what it would take it to, for that man to show he is committed to Christ. It's taught in Matthew 5, applied in Matthew 19 to the rich young ruler, and then I think it's really exemplified in Luke 19. If you want to write that down, Luke 19, Zacchaeus. The wee little man was he. Zacchaeus. Up on this tree, and he comes down, and spending time with Christ would give his life to him as his Lord and Savior. And what does he do immediately? Does anyone remember? What's he do? Yes, but what's he do after? What vow does he make? He says, I will give half of everything to the poor, and anyone that I have wronged financially, took from, taken from, which is a lot of people, because he was a tax collector, he's like, I will give that much, and I think tenfold, something like that. I don't remember. <clears throat> I don't know. You have to look it up. <clears throat> Sorry. It's not only taught in Matthew 5. It's not only applied later in Matthew, but it's also exemplified from somebody that would become a Christian that he wants to give generously. This is, this is what Christ would expect from us. He didn't say if you give to the poor. He said when you give to the poor. He assumes it. Because we take on his attributes, the most generous being that we could ever fathom. We take on his attributes, and therefore, he assumes, it's not if, when you give to the poor. When you give to the poor. So, when you give. Um, and so, the first thing that he really assumes is that we are giving, and we are generous in doing that. We are generous in what we give. But the second half, we have to look at it. Not only does he assume and expect his followers to give, to be generous people. But he expects us to do it for the poor. And I, I want to address this one for a minute because let's get a read for the room. I'll be honest with my, uh, about my past and what I've thought about the poor, if you guys will as well. I think that many of us are reluctant. We are nervous or we choose not to give to the poor. And yeah, I'm imagining the guy on the side of the street whenever you're driving, you have to stop at a stoplight and you see the guy holding the cardboard sign. That's what I'm thinking about. We, don't, we choose not to. We wouldn't want to because we're enabling them. Maybe that's a lot of your all's logic. That, that was mine. Who thought this? We're enabling that person's addiction. We're financing their addiction. And we're just perpetuating the cycle that they are in. Anyone ever thought that? Come on, be honest. My hand, I have two hands up. Come on. We're enabling, we're financing the addiction that they are most likely on right now, right? And I think, hear me, I, I, I think that that's a legitimate concern. 
I think that's a legitimate concern. I think it is unwise and a poor investment. It's just immature with your finances. If you just go and just give 400 bucks, 100 bucks to um, a person with a cardboard sign and you really give no direction and no um, teaching as he, uh, as he or she should steward that money. If you're just like, here, do what you want with it. That's not smart. It's not to give that to anybody. There would be this stewardship to make sure that they know how to um, uh, care and, and to, to be a good steward of their money. And so just to hand them money and to walk away, uh, I would agree, is not smart. It's immature and a poor decision. But I think that a lot of us use this excuse that many of you just raised your hand and said, I've thought that, I'm enabling them, I'm financing their addiction, so I just can't do it. I think many of us use that as an excuse. I think we use it as an excuse to make us feel good about not giving. We say, oh, well, I can't finance their addiction, I can't enable them, and so I'm just not going to give anything. You're right, you probably shouldn't give them $100 and just not talk to them about how they should spend that, but we could certainly give a dollar. Or at the very least, we could, we could give food, we could give supplies, we could give basic needs, but because we have that logic, well, I'm enabling them, we just look straight forward and we feel uncomfortable and we just really are waiting for that light to turn green. I think we use this enabling excuse just to cover all bases and say, well, I don't need to give ever because I would be enabling. You're not enabling them when you give them a blanket or you get an extra drink Right, whenever you just went to Chick-fil-A and you pass them on your way out to get an extra drink and to give them that, that's not enabling, that's generosity and love for the poor. So I think we would just use that excuse and, and just kind of blanket all times, uh, and that's just not right. But again, I, I'm not trying to shame or guilt anyone because I'm talking to myself here. I, I drove out of Chick-fil-A today. I, that, that example I just gave wasn't uh, hypothetical. I drove out of Chick-fil-A three days ago, two days ago. We drove out, and there was a person with a sign and I could have grabbed an extra water. So I'm not pointing fingers. I am, if anything, pointing multiple fingers at myself. I'm using an excuse. I'm enabling them so I just can't give ever. And that's just, that's not true. I'm guilty of this. But even more uh, sad, even more sad than using that as an excuse, I think that this whole, oh, well, I'm enabling them, I'm financing their addiction, this whole, that whole mentality, this concern, this worry that is legitimate, to an extent, I think that this has destroyed our instinct of generosity. Our default is not generosity. My default is usually not generosity, and I think that's unbiblical. I think biblically our default should be I want to give what I can, and skepticism and concern and thinking through, will this person take advantage of me, comes second and later, but default shouldn't be skepticism. It should be I want to give. How can I give? How can I help you? How can I serve you? That's default, but because we're worried about enabling, we're not defaulting to generosity anymore. We've been defaulting to Ah, uh, they're, they're probably going to do something really bad with it. And I just, come on, turn green. We're concerned on our default is not biblical. It's not biblical. My default much of the time is not biblical. I think we, if we're going to be biblical stewards of what God has given us financially, we should default in how can I give to you? What can I do to better your life? But I think we've moved to, at least many of us, have moved to a part where that's not our default. That's not our instinct. And it should be as we bear Christ's personality. 
in Christ's characters. Look at uh, Matthew 25. Let me just read this and kind of set the scene with you. Uh, I'm closing up here. It says in verse 31, it says, uh, Jesus is telling this to people. This is a quote from Christ. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another. Just as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Okay, so just imagine this. Christ comes back, the rapture, he, he separates, some go to the left, some go to the right, and he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you by, from the foundation uh, of the world. So he's talking to the righteous people on his right, and he says, verse 35, for I was hungry, and you, ha- and you gave, not have, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. So he's talking to the people that are righteous, the people that have inherited the kingdom, and there seems to be this direct correlation with people that are inheriting the kingdom of God, that are Christians, God's people, and their love for Christ when he was hungry, when he was thirsty, when he was a stranger, and when he was naked. They took care of him. They provided for him. There's this correlation with being God's people and providing that. And so he keeps going, I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him. They were honest. They're like, uh, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and ever visit you? They're like, "Uh, actually, I think you're talking about somebody else. I don't think that's me. And the king will answer them. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And so he's like, no, I wasn't literally talking about myself. But any time that you took care of that person, you provided clothing for that naked per- person. Uh, you remember that? And they're like, oh, yeah, I did. I did do that. And he's like, well, what about that person you, you, you fed when they were starving? Yeah, I did do that. Was, what about the person that was so thirsty and you gave them a drink? Yeah, we did do that. You, you did that to me then. But notice this. Those people were providing for those people, but Jesus never said anything about how they were like, well, did they do this themselves? Are they in this position because they spent all their money in a really irresponsible way? They didn't ask those questions. There wasn't like clauses or asterisks at the bottom to say, well, only if they didn't do that themselves, only if they didn't deserve their poverty. Just as they gave and they gave, they provided the basic needs and love and care, and I think that should also be our default. That was their default. The righteous ones that God would call into the kingdom of heaven as default is generosity. And caring for the poor, the guy with the sign. That's their instinct, to provide for that person. And so uh, we have to ask ourselves, after looking at Matthew 25 just here, and after looking at Jesus' assumption in Matthew chapter 6, and considering Zacchaeus, and considering the rich young ruler, we have to ask ourselves, what is our default? When it comes to the poor, when you look at that person with the sign, what is your default? What is your instinct you have to search your heart. Is your instinct heartbreak and concern for, that well, for their well-being? Oftentimes mine hasn't been. That's not my automatic feelings towards that person. Is it indifference or a quickened resentment, frustration for that person? Oftentimes it has been for me. Is that your default? And if it is, I sympathize with you. But we need to change that. We should not be content with that being the case or that continuing to be the case. As we step out these doors, it should not be our default. It should not be our instinct. It should not be in our, in our minds, our default and our instinct. What we want to do should be generosity. How can I give to you? How can I love you? And so 
Christ's desire for you, his command for you, is to have a softened heart for the poor, genuine compassion. Not just give a dollar because now you feel guilty after the sermon. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for guilt uh, to be like, oh man, now I need to give a dollar next time I see a guy. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm wanting is deeper, is more than the action. I want you to have a heart of compassion for that person that would lead you to give them a dollar every chance you get. I don't want you to be like, I see a homeless person. Uh, Isaac just had a sermon. Now I got to buy an extra. Make that two McChickens. Like, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for you just to desire to give that person food, to have, uh, to give them water. I want us to have a heart of compassion and love for their well-being and for them, regardless of if they did it to themselves, regardless if they are in, a, in an addiction and they're going to just continue their cycle. We want to give to them and love them how we can. That should be our default. That's my heart. That's my desire for you. So when we walk out of here, uh, I'm wrapping up here, but when we walk out of these doors, I would encourage you to have a softened heart for the poor, a love for them and a care for them that is really based on and founded on your realization that's exactly what God did for you. Just remember that. God was infinitely generous to me. God loved me and gave to me more than I could ever deserve. I, if you remember broken vessels, I was impoverished. I was lame. I was deaf. I was incapable to provide for myself. I was undeserving. Yet he gives life, and now I see. That is the unbelievable generosity that is our standard, that is our example, God's love for us. God's generosity for us. And now, we should have a softened heart for those people that we could love them like Christ loved us. We are called to be like Christ, to take on his character, to take on his personality to the lost world that needs to see an example of unworldly generosity, unworldly love, forgiveness, grace, gifted to them when they didn't deserve it. And then we can tell the story of how Christ did that for us. But we can't do that. Or we could hypocritically, if we didn't show that first to them. Found your love and compassion for the poor and the undeserving, the needy. Found that, find that in, base that on Christ's love for you. And so, uh, that's, that's Matthew 6, 2 through 4. That little clause, there's so much weight in the assumption when you give to the poor. When you give to the poor. And so uh, I hope you take from that a genuine love for people as we see the greatest standard of his love for us. And so uh, if you guys want to stand up and spread out, this is what we do. If you um, are new here, you haven't seen this before, uh, we're just going to spread out. We're going to take some individual time and really meditate and think through uh, some of these principles that we just talked about, some of these realities that are maybe really hard and, and, <clears throat> and maybe not natural for us, is not our instinct. I want us to spend some time praying to God about this. God, how could you make me more generous? God, how could you make me have a heart of compassion for people that right now I, I'm frustrated with? Or my, my instinct is criticism. My, my, my first thought is unfair. Why don't you go get a job? God, help me to move from that 
And to, to not think about what they did to get in that position or to think maybe they've done this or maybe they've done that. But God, help me just to have a default of just saying, I love you. How can I help you? I want to serve you. I want to give to you. I don't care what you've done in the past. I want to give generously. God, help me to have that heart. We have to plead to God for that because that is divine love. That is not love that we could ever have naturally in ourselves. We will not give it if we just give our best effort to do that out there. We won't have it because it's divine love. It's love that only comes through Christ. And so plead with God. If that's not your heart right now for the poor, plead with God that it would be to have a a love for them, like God loves you. We hope you enjoyed the sermon. If you want to find out more about our youth ministry or any other ministry here at Evangel Temple, you can visit our website at etchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon.